Good morning, church. He is risen. He is risen. You know, and I think I just heard Bill Miller all the way from Gilmington just say he's risen indeed. I do. You know, he's just so pumped this morning, as we ought to be every day, because he, in fact, is risen. Reminds me, though, of the five-year-old who had a pivotal verse to recite in an Easter program. There's one line, one verse, he is not here, he is risen. He is not here, he is risen. Well, when it came time to recite his one and only line, he is not here, he is risen, he couldn't for the life of him remember what to say. He stood there as the director sitting in the front of the stage was quietly trying to remind him of his line. And the director would whisper in mouth, he is not here, he is risen. He is not here, he is risen. The five-year-old then confidently grabbed the microphone and triumphantly shouted, he's not here, he's in prison. (laughs) That kind of changes the whole story. You know, many attempt to keep Jesus locked up. In some regards, it's a lot easier to deal with a Christ who has not risen. The truth that he has risen means that Jesus can show up anywhere, anytime, and ask of me whatever he wants. Case in point is a scene as recorded for us in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, I think you'll see as we go along, this indeed is a, a, a resurrection Sunday message. John chapter 21. I hope you join with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. Now, do you remember the day when uh, uh, trick birthday candles were a thing? Remember when they first came out and everyone just thought it was just, you know, the greatest thing? You might remember the first time you encountered it for yourself. The candles are on the cake. Everyone encourages you to make a wish, so you pause for a second or two, and then you blow out the candles. You, in one, one sweeping exhale, you blow out every single candle, and you smile proudly. Then one by one, right, the flame of each candle returns. Everyone laughs. The joke's on you, birthday boy, because they're, they're, they're trick candles. All right. Well, our scene in John chapter 21 is of some disciples and one man in particular whose flame had gone out momentarily. On Good Friday, if you were here, uh, we spent uh, a few moments looking at Peter's colossal failure. The night that, that Peter got leveled, his life collapsed. He denied the Lord three times before the rooster crowed, and then he he caught a look from Jesus that broke him into pieces. And that low point in Peter's life is the backdrop. It's the backdrop for what we see here this morning in John chapter 21. Peter's flame, at least he thought, had gone out. But Jesus' prayer for Peter that his faith would not fail, is answered as we come to John chapter 21. Now, this true story should really be of encouragement to you uh, of how the living Christ can ignite your flame just when maybe you thought it went out. It's no trick when Jesus touches your life. All right, look with me at this example. 
Uh, And John chapter 21, my first heading this morning is gone fishing. Gone fishing. Okay, John 21, verse 1. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is also known as the Sea of Galilee. It's an ordinary day. This is post-resurrection when Jesus shows up. Jesus had already appeared to the disciples on two other occasions. And this would mean that that sometime following Jesus' appearance to them behind closed doors, they traveled roughly probably around 80 miles to the Sea of Galilee. And what are they doing at the Sea of Galilee? Well, Simon Peter uh, answers that, and he says to us, and it says in verse 3, I'm going out to fish. I'm going out to fish. Now, has Peter hung up this gone fishing sign on on, on the door of his heart? Is this Peter's way here of saying goodbye to all that he had known in following Jesus? Is is he going back to what he once knew? Did he figure that his usefulness for the Lord was over? And so, guys, I'm going fishing. I'm done with that life. Perhaps. And I wonder how many like Peter have gone fishing, sitting on the sidelines, because of failure. In a gathering this size, it's, it's my guess that there are some in this room who feel benched because of some mess up in their life. Some who might be thinking, you know, if only, if only I could have that night back. If only I could go back to that time before I blew it. If only I had made a different decision. If only. If only. If only. What is your if only? Well, Peter takes his regrets out to sea. The others replied, we're going to go with you. And they got in the boat, and they went fishing. Now, here we see Peter and six other disciples return to that which they knew best, fishing. And you can't blame them, really. The the kingdom, as they had imagined, had not come about, and their master wasn't around as much as he used to be. Now, it's interesting to note that some of these same guys mentioned here began their apprenticeship with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee as they were doing what? Fishing. Fishing. You can check it out for yourself in Mark chapter 1. And so they they go out fishing. And and how was their night of fishing when typically the fish are biting? Well, the end of verse 3 tells us, but that night they caught nothing. And while the seven of them are experiencing failure out on the water, they didn't know they were being watched. But the risen Christ shows up, because he can show up anytime, anywhere, any place, and he shows up and he's standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he calls out to them in verse 5. He says, friends, which is a term of endearment, friends, haven't you any fish? Now the last thing fishermen want to admit is that they didn't catch anything. But they give an honest answer and they say, no, mm -mm, nothing. They caught nothing. Now, is this Jesus' subtle way of saying, apart from me, you can do nothing? Well, they didn't know this was Jesus calling out to them. Jesus then tells them in verse 6 to throw their net on the right side of the boat and they would find some fish. And this was deja vu all over again because there was another time a few years back and they experienced something very similar. 
That time, like this time, was a frustrating night of fruitless efforts. Just like the time before, Jesus commands them to let down the net once more. And when they did that the last time, a few years back, there was an immediate and abundant success. Well, the rest of verse 6 informs us that when they threw their net over the right side of the boat, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, the light bulb then goes on for one of the disciples, John, who turns to Peter and he says in verse 7, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. And as soon as Peter realized it was the Lord, the old Peter was back. He jumped into the water, I think he kind of did a cannonball, and he swam to the shore to meet with Jesus. And, I can, and one can only wonder, really, as he's swimming, going to the shore to, to see Jesus, what was going through Peter's mind. And I'm just using my sanctified imagination here. Would Jesus, he might be thinking, would Jesus, is he gonna, as soon as I see him, is he going to remind me of the night that I let him down? I mean, might Jesus say to me, I told you so, Peter. I tried to warn you. You wouldn't listen. Would Jesus say, as far as I get there and I see Jesus, is, Peter, you, you just don't have what it takes to be an effective fisher of men. You're washed up. Now, to Peter's credit, at least he's swimming towards Jesus. Now, I draw a lesson out of this. When we have blown it, swim toward your Savior, not away from him. Right? When you've blown it, swim toward him, not away from him. Because in our failures, it is the Lord. Same Lord. In our darkest times, it is the Lord. In, in, in our fruitless efforts, it is still the Lord. He's the same today, yesterday, and, and forever. In our times of doubts, it is the Lord. It is the Lord who is faithful always. It is the Lord. Well, Peter and the others, they reach shore. Peter by swimming and the others by boat. And what do they discover? Second heading this morning is Jesus cooks breakfast. Jesus cooks breakfast. Look at verse 9. I'm not making this up. Verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. The last time Peter was by a fire of the burning coals was when? When he denied the Lord. That was then. This is now. Jesus says, let's eat. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that the Son of God is making breakfast for a bunch of men who failed him. It's not just Peter. In Mark 14, 50, it says that at the time of Jesus' arrest, that everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone. Is this how we treat people who have let us down? I mean, for those who heard us, we might be cooking something up, but it wouldn't be breakfast. <laughs> like Jesus, though, we should be a community of believers who cook breakfast for failures. We need to be a church where restoration takes place. We need to help others get up and finish the race if they've fallen down. And that may be you now. It may be you in the future. It might have been you in the past. You see, but if we offer restorative grace as a church, we will never lack a congregation. Never. Because the message we offer to the world is that God is in the business of, of rebuilding broken lives. The word of encouragement to each other is a message of restorative grace. And so Jesus moves towards these men by serving them. It would be the last thing you'd expect from someone who you let down. It would be the last thing you can imagine the Lord doing for you, but exactly the touch that you needed. See, one of the biggest lies you can believe 
One of the biggest lies you can believe is that you have done something to remove yourself from the outstretched arm of God. Don't listen to the lie that says, since I have blown it, I might as well continue in that direction because I am too far gone for Jesus' touch on my life. That is bogus. Do not buy that at all. That does not line up with Scripture. And so if you've moved away from the Lord, Jesus, Jesus invites you to eat with him, to fellowship with him. It's been said that Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. So what is it that you've done? The risen Jesus continually calls out to you and says, let's eat. I want to fellowship with you. Let's eat. And just as the disciples needed this appearance by Jesus, it might be just what you need. See, Jesus is risen. It means he can and he wants to show up in your life today. A man was driving his children to church on Easter Sunday. He was trying to explain to them that that Easter was when we celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. And and from the back seat, his three-year-old piped up and said, well, okay then, will Jesus be in church today? (laughs) Good question. Yes, he is. He's here. Better than that, though, he can show up anywhere, anytime. He's with you throughout the week. And so when they finished eating, it says Jesus goes over to Simon. He says, you know what? You and me, we need to talk. And so I come to our third heading this morning, some unfinished business. Some unfinished business. There is unfinished business that Jesus had to do with a man who might have thought he was finished. Let me say that again. There's unfinished business that Jesus had to do with a man who might have thought he was finished. Look with me at verse 15. Jesus says to Peter, he says, Simon, son of John. Now, I just want to pause there for a second. You might recall that Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. Simon, in essence, means shaky. Peter means rock-like. We might call him rocky, right? Notice here what he calls him. He calls him shaky, not rocky, because it's accurate for Simon Peter had been a little shaky lately. So Jesus asked Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Well, what does he mean by more than these? Well, much has been written on this, as you can imagine, Is Jesus asking him by, do you love me more than these? Is he asking them, do you love me more than than, than you love these other guys? Possibly, I don't think so. Or is it, do you love me more than these? Your fishing uh, equipment, your fishing gear. Do you love me more than these, Peter? And the majority of commentators land there. That Jesus is asking Peter to choose between his old life of fishing, to which he seems to be returning, and the new life of being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that's very possible. Uh, that, that almost makes sense to me. I could certainly come close to land there. But I think that Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these other guys love me? Now the reason I think that is because of the backdrop of this scene is Peter's denial of Jesus. And back when Jesus put it out there that all were going to fall on account, away on account of me, remember, Peter adamantly said, no, 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 even if all fall away, I will not. I love you more than they love you. I'll never fall away. You can count on it, Lord. I will not fall away. I love, I love you more than, than, than they love you, in essence. So, Jesus asked, do you, love, do you truly love me more than these? That kind of had to be a little humbling for Peter. But one thing's for sure. 
Jesus pressing Peter on his love for him. And so he asked him, Simon, Simon, do you love me? Now, you, you've heard many sermons on this, I suppose, and, and, and the word he uses for love there is agape, and I'm not going to get into all of this, but, but there might be something to this, so it's worth mentioning. Simon, do you love me? Do you agape me? Do you have a full-blown, 100% love for me that stands out from all the others? And, and Peter really only answers the first half of the question. He says, you know that I have affection for you. He uses a different word. He doesn't use agape. He uses filio, filio. I, I, I have an affection for you. It's a different word. So, so Jesus asks again, do you agape me? Do you truly love me with a full love, a divine love, a self-sacrificing love? And Peter again says, yes, Lord, you know that I have filial affection for you. I have a fondness for you. I care for you. Different word. Again, I think Peter's self-aware enough to know that he can't really say that his love is an agape love for he failed him in his denial. It's still in his mind. So Jesus asks him a third time, and this time he goes down to Peter's level. He says, do you even have affection for me? I'll use your word now, Peter. Filio, do you have a, a friendship for me? Now Peter's hurt. He isn't hurt because Jesus asked him three times. He's not going, oh man, how many times are you going to ask me this question? That's not why he's hurt. Perhaps he's, he's asking because three times he denied, three times uh, he asked them question. I mean, that preaches, that's possible. But it was a very common thing, by the way, to do in Judaism, to ask or state things three times. Well, whatever's going on here, Jesus is leaning in on Peter, not to crush him, but to reinstate him. Because when the master surgeon reaches out to restore what is broken, listen, it does hurt. It is painful. But it's purposeful. And Jesus is igniting the flame in Peter's heart to that place of usefulness. Now notice here in verse, end of verse 17, Peter, of that third time being asked that question, he now appeals to Jesus' knowledge of him. And he says, Lord, you know all things. And I think Peter, in essence, is saying, Lord, you know me. You know my feelings, my failings, you know my denial of you, you know everything about me. And when you said I would deny you and I said no way, you were right. You know me better than I know myself. And I think Peter's saying, you know, I wish I could say, Lord, I love you with 100% full devotion. But the last time I said that, it didn't go so well. So his answer to the third question, Peter, do you, do you have affection for me? He says, Lord... You know all things. I'm just going to go there. Sometimes our appeal is that Jesus knows that deep within, I love him. Preacher Charles Spurgeon tells the story of a time he went to visit an elderly lady from his church, and she was housebound. And as soon as he walked in, he could see that she was very, very dejected. And she said to her pastor, she goes, you know, I don't think that I have any real faith. I don't think I have any love for Jesus. Spurgeon didn't argue with her. He, he went, he found a piece of paper and a pencil, and he wrote on the paper at the top, I do not love Jesus. I do not love Jesus. And he, said, and he asked her to sign it. And she said, oh, no, 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 I can't sign that. So he said, no, come along, sign it. I do not love Jesus. Sign it. And she replied, I can't sign that. Jesus knows that isn't true. Jesus knows that isn't true. See, don't always trust how you feel. Trust what Jesus knows. 
And if you're in need of restoration, we might have nothing else to say in our defense except Jesus knows. Jesus knows. The living Christ shows up in your life. He wants to reinstate you, restore you, and bring you to that place of usefulness. Jesus had some unfinished business with the one who thought he was finished. And Jesus goes on to say to Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times, Jesus said to him, I am going to entrust you, Peter, with my sheep. I'm going to use you again, Peter. You're going to be a shepherd of my sheep. Wow, Peter wasn't being dumped at all. He wasn't being thrown away. He was being restored to a place of usefulness. And just as the rooster crows signaling a new day, Peter was given a fresh start. Many years ago, there was an angry man who rushed through the barriers of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And with his hammer, he began to smash away at Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, Pieta. And with the pieces of the Pieta on the floor and the world of art stunned, all wondered, can this brilliant work of art be restored? Well, did the officials just throw out the damaged sculpture and forget about it? Absolutely not. Using art experts who worked with the utmost care and precision, they made every effort to restore the masterpiece. The damage could hardly be, be noticed and detected by the average viewer. Now, in an even greater way, God took the debris of Peter's life and he did a magnificent job in rebuilding it. Let me ask you, have you felt the crushing power of a sinful choice? Jesus says, I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you. Will you, will you give the pieces of your broken world to the restorer and rebuilder of your life? How is this possible? Because Christ is risen. You can have an Easter start. And you may say, I don't need an Easter start. I'm doing okay. You might need it someday. Or maybe you have needed it in the past. My last heading this morning is an Easter start. You see, church, no matter how big or small your failure, it doesn't have to be fatal. It's never too late to begin again. In the Broadway version, Scrooge one particular song puts it this way. It says, I'll begin today, throw away the past. And the future I build will be something that will last. I'll take the time that I have left to live and I'll give it all that I have left to give. Then he says, and I'll live in praise of that moment when I was able to begin again. That's the message of the risen Christ. That no matter how badly you have blown it in the past, you can have a fresh start. That's, that's the whole message of the gospel. It can be redeemed. It can start over. The late Paul Harvey was once asked, what is the secret of your success? He replied, I get up when I fall down. There's a proverb in God's, way, in God's word to that effect in Proverbs 24, 16. Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. Here's the takeaway. The tragedy is not failure itself. It's not realizing that God can make something good out of it. The tragedy is not failure itself. It's not realizing that God can make something good of it. And so, what's God asking of you today? Maybe, maybe you're here and, and, and it's time for you to make that decision, that Easter start and, and believe in him. You say, you know, all my past, it's a mess back there. 
I have messed up everything I've touched. There's no way I can come with God with all that stuff. No, 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 yes, you can. That's the whole point. Come as you are. You might need to take that step of, of, of trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you about that. It might be the time for you this Easter to transfer your trust in yourself to the finished work on the cross because you can have an Easter start. What's God asking of you right now? Well, maybe, maybe he's, he's asking you to return to your first love. Maybe he's, maybe he's calling you to end that relationship with a particular sin. Maybe he's calling you to quit hiding behind excuses and blame and get back in the game. C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, describes one of Satan's favorite tactics to demoralize and discourage Christians. He says this, Get Christians to become preoccupied with their failures, and then from then on, the battle is won. Listen, failures are a part of life. That's why I love John 21. The greater failures trying to hide them, the greater failures to let it keep us from getting back in the game, because failure is not falling down, it's, it's not getting up. It's doubting that God can use it in your life, because defeat does not have to be the end of your story. Not when God's in it. So in what way have you been using failure as an excuse? Have you been on the sidelines? Listen, be honest. Have you been on the sidelines way too long? Is it time to get back in the game? Failure does not have to be fatal. You can have an Easter start. So wherever we are at in our lives at this point with mess-ups, Wrong decisions, we can have an Easter start. No matter how badly we've blown it, we can have an Easter start. That's what the risen Savior is all about. No matter the scars we take with us to the grave, we can have an Easter start. For King and Country wrote this song. I'll give you a portion of it. And there inside your head, you got a voice that says, you won't get past this one, you won't win your freedom. It's like a constant war, and you want to settle that score, but you're bruised, and you're beaten, and you feel defeated. Oh, to everyone who's, who's hit their limit, it's not over yet. And even when you think you're finished, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. There's more to be written. God's not finished with you yet. And that's true of every single one of us in this room. They call themselves the Landfill Harmonic. The Landfill Harmonic. Maybe you've, you, you've read about this. It's a poor uh, community in, in Paraguay that has formed an amazing orchestra that plays instruments created from recycled trash. The young musicians come from the city of Katura. It's a slum, really, that's built on a, a landfill. It's built on a landfill. More than 1,500 tons of trash gets dumped into the landfill every day. About 1,000 residents make their living by picking through the trash with long hooks. Well, Fabio Chavez, a young professional musician, and Luis uh, Saran, a music conductor, have infused the landfill with warmth and dignity and beauty. When Chavez saw the desperate poverty and the dire health conditions at the landfill, he opened up this tiny music school. 
At first, Shaphez loaned out a complete supply of five instruments, but he quickly had too many students. So Chavez asked one of the trash pickers, Nicholas Gomez, to make some instruments from recycled materials to keep the younger kids occupied. And eventually, these students learned to play a small orchestra of miraculously redeemed instruments. A cello made out of an oil can and old cooking tools. A flute made from tin cans. A drum set that uses x-rays as the skins. Bottle caps that serve as the keys for a saxophone. A double bass constructed out of chemical cans. And a violin made from a battered aluminum salad bowl and strings tuned with forks. The recycled orchestra plays classical music and Paraguayan folk tunes and, and even some rock, rock pieces. And Chavez claims that this amazing story has taught, has taught him at least one profound lesson. People realize that we shouldn't throw away trash carelessly. Well, we shouldn't throw away people either. We shouldn't throw away people either. Now, this might be your first Sunday in this church. I don't know. But let me tell you something. You may come in and say, I got all kinds of stuff in my past that's ugly. And look at all these people around this room. They got it all together. We don't have it all together. We don't have it all together. Someone said, we just know the one who does. <laughs> we don't have it all together. We are a room full of people who have had failures, made mistakes, and are broken. Christ has redeemed all of us from a spiritual landfill. And like the instruments in this story, he has brought us together into an orchestra that plays beautiful music called the church. That's it. That's our story. I hope that's your story too. Because of Easter, Christ can lift us from a spiritual landfill, bringing beauty out of our broken. Beauty out of our brokenness. Let's pray. God, we can get all wrapped up in the details sometimes and what some even think are, are, are contradictions of the resurrection story and, and lose our way. And, not, and kind of forget about the very fact that the risen Christ that we're celebrating, remembering today goes far beyond the empty tomb story and goes to our story every single day throughout this world. There's another story that can give praise to you of a life redeemed. And we thank you for that, that Jesus, you are our living hope. You've set us free. You, you, you've broken every chain, chain of failures, chain of our past, whatever it is, you've broken that. We thank you for that. And, we're, and we want to be mindful that you are a living hope throughout this week, throughout our days here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.